We are going to bring back Nine Lessons and Carols for Godless People, though it's never really been for godless people. It's just for people who uh, are non-dogmatic uh, or overly uh, tribal generally, uh, just kind of lightly tribal. They like a gathering, but they don't then believe that that particular gathering has to dominate the rest of their life. Uh, so we are going to do uh, a series of Nine Lessons and Carols uh, for godless people and Quakers and Unitarians and all the kind people. Uh, and that is going to be at the Conway Hall in London on December the 16th, 19th, 20th and 22nd. And you're going to be coming along, aren't you, Josie? I'm coming along on the 20th and 22nd. And we have a lot of guests as well who have already been announced. And if you just go to the Cosmic Shambles Network, you will see who those guests are. And if you do come along to one of the Nine Lessons shows, you'll also be able to check out the Cosmic Superheroes Photography Exhibition that is taking place at Conway Hall during December and January where we're celebrating 14 of the women of Cosmic Shambles who've come up with their own superheroes, people like Josie and Helen Chersky and Lucy Green and Grace Petrie and Selena Godden and Katie Brand and lots more. So you can find out more about that on the Cosmic Shambles website as well, cosmicshambles.com slash superheroes. And a very quick note just before we start this episode, the audio quality isn't uh, ideal on this particular episode. We were in a very small temporary studio in New Zealand when we recorded this and uh, due to various reasons we only had one big microphone to share between Robin, Josie and our guest Rebecca Priestley. So do bear that in mind while you're listening to it. And also Josie had a terrible cold so that didn't help either. But it was such an interesting conversation that we had with Rebecca. We obviously still wanted to make sure the episode went out so you could all hear it. So here it is in its entirety, uh, free for everyone, no charge to Patreon uh, supporters, uh, pledges for this particular episode. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, so places because you're slanted and I can leave. <coughs> I'm 48. I know, but you're very Come sprightly. on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now I'm covered in your chair that's all got... It's not got your cold germs, on it. It's so sudden with cold. Yeah, um, you're all going to be fine. Hello, welcome to the second New Zealand... What's it, Cosmic Shambles, we like to call it? Well, well let's just go the second... Yeah, the second New Zealand Cosmic Shambles, Josie and Robin book shambles. And uh, we are joined today by someone who's brought the largest collection of books so far. And I think I've got about three of them, but not... Oh, really? And uh, is also uh, a pumice nerd. <laughs> so we're going to start on pumice nerdery. Uh, and we're joined by Dr Rebecca Priestley. Um, pumice nerd. So... Do, yeah, do you see? I've got my pumice nerd necklace on. So pumice today. nerd necklace. Yeah. It's obviously a good place to be in terms of being brought up anywhere. Uh, I presume New Zealand, if you're going to be a pumice nerd. Yeah, well, there's, we've, we've got one of the biggest super volcanoes in the world in the middle of the North Island, the Topor volcano. Um, so there's, there's huge pumice fields around there. And the pumice um, washes down the main rivers to the beach so all along the beaches along the west coast you can pick up pieces of pumice but that that's not really where my nerdery comes from when I, it was in um uh, oh it was 2012 I was sailing on a ship um to the Kermadec Islands which are you know in the northeast uh, about two days sailing north of Auckland and um someone had seen something in the water. The Air Force had spotted something, identified what they called an event in the sea below. And so the Navy ship that I was on, we were redirected to go and have a look, to investigate. And it turned out to be this enormous pumice raft, basically the sides of Belgium or something. And the sea, um, the ship ploughed through this incredible pumice raft, which um, the officer um, on the watch said was as far as he could see in every direction was just white. It was nighttime. So he shone the lights, and this is an incredible pumice raft, just this jumble of pumice about a couple of feet thick. Um, and so uh, from then on, it was really a, f a forensics case. Some, some scientists in uh, the US and in France looked at satellite pictures and traced back and identified this eruption from a month earlier. And so we collected samples of pumice. I've got a, a background in geology, so I was very excited to help the onboard geologist with this. Um, collected samples, brought them back, and then scientists identified what volcano it was from. Um, and a few months later, the pumice started washing up on beaches in New Zealand. 
And this mad coincidence, um, the woman who had first spotted the pumice from an aeroplane and alerted scientists to go and have a look, who alerted the Air Force to check it out, she is a forager and a jeweller. And she um, started collecting the pumice and making jewellery out of it, and that's what I've got here. Can I ask, on in terms of volcano definition, right at the beginning you said it was a supervolcano. That's so the in the same way like supermassive black holes, whatever it may be, what, at what levels of different kind of volcano and how do we define them? Okay, the, the Taupo supervolcano, is, it's like Yellowstone, just a massive, massive volcano. So in the middle of the North Island there's an enormous lake, Lake Taupo, and that is the caldera of an enormous volcano. So it's really, a, a, there's all sorts of other stuff that, that I've, probably forgotten since my geology days but huge and the sort of eruptions they have spread um, eruption products over enormous areas so um, Topor is one of the super volcanoes Yellowstone's another um, and it's just a completely different scale the pumice that I'm wearing around my neck is from an underwater volcano which is a much smaller sort of volcano yeah so you've um no, go on. It's, it's much really harder like this because we're in a line, I aren't know, we? I yeah. know, it's really hard to in line. Also, I'm just like, oh, I, I love hearing about you talking about the volcanoes. <laughs> I just want you to keep talking well, the, about the, 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 uh, the coolest thing was while, well, there were lots of cool things, but when we were on the ship, I was there. Um, it was a, a trip sponsored by Pew Environment Group, and I was there as a, a science communicator. So I was blogging for Scientific American and writing some articles for the listener and doing some pieces podcasts for Radio New Zealand and so I I was all sort of wired up with my mics and I was talking to the geologist on board Helen Bostock and I was doing an interview and I was basically saying so we're we're travelling up above this line of underwater volcanoes you know what would happen if one of them erupted while we were going over and then there was this sort of mad commotion on the deck and we heard the captain giving instructions to change course and and it was to go and investigate this um, this volcano so it was very cool yeah it's like you wished it into being i know but i was actually quite quite scared because you could see on the maps um the the bathymetric maps how we were traveling up against this line of volcanoes and if there was a volcanic eruption as you were traveling north you know there's potential for huge gaseous um eruptions coming up a great big gas bubble coming up under a ship not a good thing so yeah might be a Bermuda Triangle type situation. So I was actually feeling a little bit scared about that. So coming across this nice jumble of pumice was kind of cool. It was like the nice, yeah, yeah, the nicest yeah. possible outcome. <laughs> yeah. In 2016, you won the uh, Prime Minister's Prize as well, which is, I would say for probably UK listeners, the nearest equivalent would be something like the Welcome Prize uh, for a science book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you've written quite a lot. I mean, now, Mad About Radium, which is uh, New Zealand in the Atomic Age, which, of course, for us, from a distance, we see New Zealand in the Atomic Age as merely being the place that people are going to flee to <laughs> because we've already heard that people are coming yeah. over here, buying up property. Those who voted for Trump and have a large amount of money are also insuring themselves against Armageddon as well sure. by living here. Yeah. But I presume that's not what that was dealing with. It's not what it was dealing with, and I think the biggest sort of nuclear story in New Zealand is, yay, we're nuclear-free. And I think for a lot of younger people especially, they don't know sort of what came before that. So I I was a teenager in the 1980s and we were protesting against American nuclear warships um, visiting New Zealand. And this was the time where the nuclear-free legislation came in, um, in 1987. So I was sort of there and aware of sort of what was happening before and after. But I think especially for people who've grown up in nuclear-free New Zealand, um, they're not aware that there was a story beforehand. And so the story that I've written about, um, I I did some pre-war stuff about use of medical radium and things in New Zealand. But during the Second World War, Ernest Marsden, who was Rutherford's student who, you know, worked on the Marsden-Geiger experiment, the gold foil experiment, he he came to New Zealand and he was at the head of our Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. And so he had fantastic connections with physicists in the UK and in the United States during the war. So he got wind of what was going on 
with the nuclear project, which was had the code name Tube Alloys Project in the UK, and then Manhattan Project in the States. And he was really keen to get some of his top young physicists involved. So really, he through his connections, he got some New Zealand physicists involved in the Manhattan Project, and another group of physicists involved in the project at Chalk River in Canada to develop the first nuclear reactor. Meantime, back in New Zealand, he was organising teams to go and search for uranium. Um, yeah, so he he was very sort of... He, he made the people in the UK very nervous because he was so excited about it, he was being a little bit indiscreet, whereas they were like, come on, this is very secret, you can't be talking about this. So there were New Zealanders involved in those wartime projects, um, And then after the war, um, there were plans to build a nuclear reactor in New Zealand. Um, And as one of the heads of the British project said, they cannot unlearn what they have already learned. So there was a lot of secrecy post-war about things nuclear, but this New Zealand group already had been working on um, building the first nuclear reactors. So there was a plan to have a nuclear reactor, a research reactor in New Zealand, um, and it just never really got off the ground. Um, um, yeah, it was going to be expensive. Later on, there was um, there was almost a deal whereby the US um, helped fund a research reactor in New Zealand, but again, it, it just didn't happen. There were always better things for the New Zealanders to be spending money on, so it was really for sort of practical reasons. Um, <clears throat> there were, you know, there were some scientists who were very pro, and some who were you know, this isn't really a sensible thing for us to be doing. So it was not an ideological argument at all. And then um, the uranium prospecting in New Zealand carried on for decades. So um, in the 1950s, there was a bit of a uranium rush where some uranium was found in the West Coast, in Buller Gorge, and it got very exciting. Um, The government produced a booklet on prospecting for radioactive minerals, including a little how to build your own Geiger counter. So it was all very exciting. How do you build your own Geiger counter? Well, like, there's a little map in the book if you'd like to have a look. Yeah, yeah. Let's have a look at the game. Or you could, you could buy one, I think, for £10. Um, I have to see if I can find the... See, knowing that I'll, I'll build one that's really faulty, and then I'll presume that... Um, if it's running fine. There we go, there's, some, there's the basic instructions. Let's see, so general arrangement of probe, a bottom cap, body tube, top cap, extension tube... You get that done easy. Yeah, we'll knock that up in the hotel afterwards. You reckon? But this is, yeah. yeah, that should be fine. So did Marsden have any... I mean, think of people who've been involved in the Manhattan mm. Project. There was a kind of real... Uh, many of them had regret afterwards. Yes. And believed that they'd unleashed something. I mean, I think Richard Feynman talked mm. about a moment where he was walking through New York and he suddenly imagined all of the blocks that would disappear at the point yeah. of uh, an atom bomb exploding. Mm. Did Marsden have similar... Uh, well, he wasn't directly involved. He actually wanted to be. He was more like sort of organising and helping New Zealand scientists to get on the project. But it was interesting, um, post-war, the British and, and, and the Americans were developing their nuclear programmes, and New Zealand very much supported the British um, testing programme in the Pacific, until, now here's the pumps connection, until the point that the UK Prime Minister asked New Zealand's permission to test um, hydrogen bombs in the Kermadex, which is where I was on my way to when I um, had the pumice encounter, and Marsden actually advised against it, <coughs> said this was not such a good idea, which actually made, um, made the UK very cross with the New Zealanders for saying no. So, so New Zealand supported the British nuclear testing programme in many ways, um, but once the British testing programme came to a halt, then New Zealand started to speak out and protest against continued testing by the US and then the French very much so. But at the same time, we, were, um, we did have plans to have nuclear power stations in New Zealand to contribute to you know, our electricity production. Um, <coughs> So through the 1960s and much of the 1970s, there were nuclear power stations on our power plant until there was a commission of inquiry in 1978. And again, you know, the main reason that we didn't go ahead was economic, not um, ideological. Yeah. Right, let's start on your books because you've got at least 10 there. <laughs> and uh, I'm fascinated by the, the, the empathy exams essays. Uh, yeah. So this is, because I've just been reading a book about, is it about empathy? Um, to some degree, yeah, it's a theme running through. This is, I just bought this because it's what I'm reading right at the moment. Yeah, Can I have a look? yeah, sure. 
because I've just started Paul Bloom's Against Empathy. Oh, okay. Which is his his book about the idea that empathy is actually can be a very negative thing. Um, it's compassion that we need to work right. harder on. Yeah. But I've not got far enough to explain it any better than that. Yeah. Well, these but, are these are personal essays, um, and and yeah, with empathy being a sort of underlying theme. I've only read two so far, but um, incredible. She's one of those young writers who you realise straight away is m- much smarter than you are. She just seems incredibly smart and, and yeah, wide-ranging in everything she writes about. What, what drew you to it? It's Leslie Jameson. And what, mm. what, was, uh, what was it when you saw that book? You thought, ah, yeah, this is what I want. Well, I'm actually, you know, I'm an, a- I'm an academic here at Victoria, but I've got a, a sabbatical this year, research and study leave, and... So in my time off, I'm actually doing a master's degree. I'm doing a master of creative writing. Oh, wow. So it's a it's an eight month program at the International Institute of Modern Letters here, at Victoria. This where Eleanor Catton and other great people studied. Um, and I'm writing nonfiction, mostly sciencey, but I'm writing essays. So I'm looking at um, yeah, trying to read a lot of books of essays. And this was something that was hugely recommended to me. Would you um, would you like to write uh, fiction as well? Think of someone like Jana Levin. I don't know if you know Jana, who yeah, wrote yeah. a wonderful book about uh, gravitational yeah. waves and how the universe got spots, and then wrote another one, which is a name I've forgotten now. It's uh, I'm pretty certain. It, is it Please, Mr. Einstein? It might not be, but uh, it's uh, Trent will look it up, our producer. But so she she's also oh it's Turing. Ah, look it up, Jana Levin. Just Turing thing, uh, Turing machines, they're in it definitely. And she took her science and uses it then as a way of, of explaining ideas and creating a story as well. To, to write a fictional story? Yeah. Right. No, I don't think so. We, we did do an exercise in class the other day where we, I wrote a page of fiction and I did enjoy it, but I, I can't imagine how I, I could sustain that for a whole <laughs> you know it's easy to write a scene a made up scene writing a whole made up book I just don't think my brain could do that but plus there's so many crazy great true non-fiction stories mm. yeah I, I think I'm I like reading fiction just for enjoyment um but I, I I guess I write to some extent to try and make sense of the world and mm. And I'm interested in so many different sorts of sciences. It gives me an excuse to just explore whatever I want to explore. That's what we were talking about the other day, weren't we? About when you choose shows. You choose an idea in comedy, go, I'm going to write a show about this. But really, it's an alibi for you being able to immerse yourself in all of that research and those books. And then go, I'm actually working. I'm reading all these things (laughs) that I like. And then eventually the entire, you know, five volumes end up being two lines. Um, Um, sees life as like kind of extended academic research project. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I agree with that. That's very interesting that you've decided to sort of focus on your creative writing for a year. And do you feel like that's going to complement your research when you go back as well? Sure. Well, it does count as research. It is part of my suite of of research outputs because my my disciplines are history of science and science communication of so, course and so it fits about? Oh, God, my brain is so slow <laughs> don't worry but about it sorry I've got a cold but it is I like, I, I like doing both things the sort of more hardcore research and um, I mean, there's a lot of research involved in this sort of thing too but it's writing it's really about audience it's writing for a you know, a wider, broader audience oh I see rather than writing for an academic audience and I'd actually much rather do that this book's great already. I'm going to buy this one immediately. <laughs> the empathy exams, yeah. The grand unified theory of female pain. <laughs> we see wounded women everywhere. Miss Havisham wears her wedding dress until it burns. The bride within the bridal death withered like the dress. Belinda's hair gets cut. The sacred hair deserved from the fair head forever and forever and then ascends to heaven. Thy ravished hair, which adds new glory to the shiny sphere. Anna Karenna's spurned love hurt so much that she jumped in front of a train. Excellent. Right, I'm going to go for that one. <laughs> cool. uh, what's your next one in the pile? Well, the next one, I'm actually... I'm going to talk about this one the favorite book of science by john Kerry, and this i just love this book i can't remember when did i get it 20 years ago um do you know this book it's an anthology it's an anthology of science um and many of the pieces are written by scientists so what does it start with um leonardo da vinci the galileo galilei john hook 
um, Isaac Newton, Joseph Priestley. And these are pieces, little accounts of, you know, moments in science written by the scientists themselves. Um, it's so funny but, because when I was growing up, the uh, the things that I was given that were similar mm. to that were always poetry collections ah. or like literary samples. Yes. It was never ever going into a, another sphere. I know, and it's just so wonderful to think, of course, something like that's been sitting there all along. <laughs> but the but the wonderful thing is that he includes poetry as well. Oh. So so it's not all science written by the scientist. Mm. Some of them are written from other perspectives as well. They're, they're, they're not journalistic pieces though. Um, yeah. So, um, The Innocence of Radium by Lavinia Greenlaw. So there's, there's poetry in here. Um, and it goes right through Tides by Rachel Carson, um, The Gecko's Belly by Italo Calvino. So um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful mix. And I really like, you know, I think there's this false separation between science and the humanities. And it, it just brings it all together in one wonderful um, Volume and what is it? It's you know five hundred and something pages long, um, and I yeah I love it. There are lots of other sciencey anthologies, and I do tend to collect them, but this is the one that is definitely my favourite. Was it a present? I, yeah, I think it was. It might say something in there. Does it say something? It's interesting. I, don't know. I can't it's remember. John Perry. Yeah. Who you yeah. know wrote what, what good are the arts and is probably predominantly a you know known for, uh, intellectuals in the masses I think mm -hmm. was uh, I was just having a look at which ones you posted uh, which I presume have been for discovery of X rays that's got a yellow post it in that one uh, your blue post it note is in the color of radium yeah I can understand they are great aren't they these uh, you said this because you can just they're, they're, they're short pieces. Mm. But then if you did get Language of Genes by Steve Jones, who's yeah. wonderful. Steve Jones is... Um, you've met Steve, haven't you? He's uh, one of the top five snail experts in the world and geneticist. And when you walk along with him, you don't notice him do it, but at the end of the walk, he then empties his pockets and they're filled with snail shells. <laughs> and he can identify all of them just by the markers. But, but you don't notice him do it. He's just chatting. And just, there He's we go, another snail shell. shell. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I thought it meant that he might have been snacking on the way. <laughs> well, they are predominantly empty snail shells. And as I've missed him actually picking up the snail shells, who's to tell with them fat they have delicious snails inside as well? Snails might just be very frightened and hiding right inside, though. There is the possibility we're going to have to get a control snail expert and Steve Jones and work that one out. So that, that, the Faber Book of Science was really the inspiration for these two books. So I, I um, did an anthology of New Zealand science. So I was taking the same sort of idea, but just looking at um, writings by New Zealand scientists complemented by poems. Um, and, it, yeah, this sort of thing hadn't been done before. And there hasn't been much of an emphasis on New Zealand science and books and history writing so um, um, you probably don't know this there's a nice bit by Charles Darwin who came here and described New Zealand as not a pleasant place what? said we were all rather glad to leave that crazy. yeah I think he was very grumpy it was near the end of his journey and he just had enough he had a lot of arguments <coughs> on that ship didn't he yeah <laughs> they didn't necessarily get on so this is do you feel sometimes that uh, it is New Zealand science and, and perhaps New Zealand culture is sometimes ignored. There's a, you know, that it might stop, that people might go as far as Australia and then that X. And I wondered whether you see that as an advantage or disadvantage, because we were talking the other day about, um, in terms of things like cinema culture, mm. one of the things which perhaps marks out New, Ze New Zealand films is they don't seem to be trying to make Hollywood films. It's like, mm -hmm. well, we're making this for us. And therefore that often means you get more interesting ideas on screen, those that do make it on there. Cause it, un, as opposed to the pressure of the international market. Yeah, well, I mean, there are some people trying to make films for the international market, and it doesn't always go well. I think things things have. Well, been... I know you've got Peter Jackson, obviously, yeah, which sure. is different, but like yeah. kind of thinking of things like Hunt for the Wilder People oh, look, and, and all of those wonderful. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that my husband's actually a filmmaker. He's. Have you seen a film, Black Sheep? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! <laughs> this is what everyone. I mean, that did really well. Well, that did really well yeah. in the UK because I think it plays into all these sort of stereotypes and jokes about what New Zealand is like. So, for people who haven't seen it, there's a, you know, things go bad on the farm and the sheep turn into bloodthirsty predators and, yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's how Peter Jackson began, didn't he? Bad, bad <laughs> yeah, taste. Sure. Have you seen Bad Taste? Of course. Yeah, it's a bad very. Taste, Brendan. Yeah. Classic film. 
Hey, but so when you started uh, thinking about this anthology, mm. did you have everyone set out or was it a case of no, discovering I, people? And yeah, well, I was actually, at the time I was co-curating an exhibition about <coughs> New Zealand science with Veronica Maduna. Um, so we were in the National Library working there and doing all this research into New Zealand science history. And then <coughs> the invitation to do this book came in and as soon as, it was Mary Varnum's idea, the publisher, and as soon as she proposed it, I was absolutely yes. Um, so I was also doing research for this exhibition, so it was a great place. I was in this library full of every New Zealand book, so well, you know, and I was able to talk to librarians and get ideas. Um, and I had some ideas of my own, so yeah, it was good. What was the thing that most astonished you? Because it's always a wonderful thing to find out in your mm. own kind of where you live and where you've been brought up is to suddenly yeah. find that perhaps not well, that many doors away from you there was an I, idea. I think yeah. how good the stories were. And, and you know, I, hadn't, I, wouldn't have dreamed, I wouldn't have dreamt of reading, you know, Ernst Diefenbach's accounts of travels in New Zealand in the, you know, 19th century. But it was really, the, the stuff was really good and the really great strong narratives. And I guess it was at that time it was more common for a scientist, you know, this sort of mixture of travelling, science and writing and communicating about it sort of all, all went together. So some really fabulous narratives. Um, yeah, even Joseph Banks' account of visiting New Zealand. Um, Adventure botanist number one. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the, the stuff was really good and I thought yeah. it was really insightful. I mean, it, it, Ernst Stephenbuck was writing about um, whaling and this idea of ca- killing killing the female whales was not a good idea and the whale, whale um, what is it, a whalery? The whale fishery was going to collapse and he he predicted that and sure enough, a decade later it did. Wow. So just seeing the insights that some people had I thought was really interesting. That's a, I, I always find that kind of, it's uh, also great with Kindle now. Mm-hmm. That there's loads of those people who their books aren't published anymore, but because you don't have to, they don't sure. have to go through. You can get these really oddball, weird, you know, botanical adventures, or people who just catalogued things that had fallen from the sky yeah. over the last sixty years and oh, what they wow. might have been. Yeah, you know, various rocks that have fallen from the sky, eighteen thirty to eighteen sixty-two. Um, well, there's another one in there, um, Andreas Reichek, and and he wrote a whole book about it. Um, but it, it, he'd seen a stitch bird, a hehe, in the museum, Auckland Museum. I think it was, that's right. Um, and he didn't know if there were any still available in the wild, but he said, I've resolved to seek him out or die in the attempt. And then he went off onto all these islands with his dog and just about died in the attempt. He, he had his gun, his dog, and he just, you know, spent months tramping through the bush, falling down cliffs and having this mad time. Yeah, so that, some the real eccentricities of these people and the passion with which they were pursuing their science, I guess, is what really struck me. But I did, um, while I was researching it, there were some good Antarctic stories that I came across of New Zealanders doing work in Antarctica, and I thought, oh, should I put them in or should I save them for another book? And so I saved them, and my most recent book is this, which is an anthology of Antarctic science called oh, wow. Dispatches from Continent 7. And that was, yeah, that was great. So I've been to Antarctica a couple of times um, and, yeah, going there gave me the opportunity, among many other things, to talk to lots and lots of Antarctic scientists all together in one place and, and get their thoughts and ideas on what some of the best stories were. What's the atmosphere like with people who are living there? Because I sort of always like to imagine there'd be a lot of intrigue. <laughs> Do you know there was something I read just... Um, the other day, it was in the news about the happiest workplace in New Zealand is Scott Base, Antarctica. Huh. It's a wonderful, in my experience, it's been a wonderful place. It's so collegial. Everyone's there with a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's willing to help each other out. Um, it's a physically challenging place, so safety's really important, and I think everyone looks out for each other a little bit. And there's a bit of psychological vetting for who goes down, especially for people who are there for a long time. So it just seems the nicest people in the world are there, I don't know. So and like astronauts, it's like yeah. you really have to be the right kind of person but, to get there. But also I think because you're down there to do something, to do some science, to work on the project you're most passionate about or to research for a book, you don't have all the other 
bullshit of your life there as well. Yeah. Even if it's wonderful stuff like your family <laughs> or or other, you know, housework and and responsibilities, all those other responsibilities are left behind and you can just focus single-mindedly on the thing that you're doing. People cook for you if you're staying at Scott Base. Nice. Um, you have to do a few chores, but you can just focus on your project and that's an immensely satisfying thing t- to be able to do. What would be the, the what can be the problem, psychological problems over a period of time? There? Well, I, I haven't, I've only been there for two week mm. trips, so I haven't experienced that. But, you know, isolation, I guess, you know, in a, in a um, small base, 12 people wintering over. Um, yeah. So what's the longest period of time someone would, would be there normally? I think 18 months. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 12 to 18 months for winter is over there. I think it depends which base you're at. Would you want to do that, you think, once your no. kids are grown up? You wouldn't want to... Um, uh, once the kids are grown up, probably not. I'd, I'd, I'd like to be there for longer than two weeks, but I don't think I'd want to do a whole winter. Yeah, Your maybe. husband's working on another zombie sheet film. <laughs> You've been through it all before. The kids are growing up. They're at university. Someone says 18 months, the Antarctic. I don't know. Ask me then. Uh, uh, the 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 thing is, I have experienced in a in a tent and and in the Transantarctic Mountains when it was snowing. I did experience a bit of a feeling of claustrophobia of not being able to get out. There was nowhere to go, and you know, if you were there through the winter, mm-hmm. there's nowhere to go, and and it, you know, it could be a bit of a claustrophobia you know, a kind of a claustrophobia of just not being able to escape to anywhere. Um, and I find that on a ship as well, just being somewhere where there's nowhere, you can't get off. Um, yeah, I think I might find that a bit scary. That's why I'd never do cruise ship comedy. There's certain <laughs> comedians who do, they'll yeah. do it, but then you're stuck on the cruise ship mm. and then if you die on your ass, you're trapped yep. with your audience <laughs> who will hate you. I've had that, but it was a nice experience because it was all indie people who liked cardigans and stuff. Oh, where was that? What cruise ship did it you do then? the North Atlantic... No. Atlantic Ocean Music and Comedy Festival, which uh, Max Fun organised, so the podcast network, so it was just loads of cool musicians and stuff. So as a result, it was it, it was the exact flip side of the worst experience you can imagine, because everywhere I went, people were like, hey, we saw your show, we loved it. And I was like, oh my God, this is the best time of my entire life. So... I wish I could remember there was that one comic I heard who was airlifted off. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we're really badly. And I, I, even if I could remember the name of the comedian, I probably wouldn't say it. But, uh, yeah, just the whole thing went tits up on a Friday. And uh, the next day they went, it's probably better we just get you off. Oh, my gosh. You have people just banging on your cabin door. Just having to hide. Oh, dear. So the next one is... Look, here's a book of poetry. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, Carolyn Hughes, Gathering Evidence. Um... It's a gorgeous book, um, and I and I don't read a huge amount of poetry, but I I do like sciencey poetry. Um, She's gathering evidence. Would have been a fan of Newton, the householder who guzzled his millet gruel and malt beer one bitter morning in Wales and ran outside to capture hailstones. You've got verse two. Yeah. That's great. It's a really fascinating thing to me, which is, again. I always mention Richard Feynman too much, but uh, it's either Richard Feynman or Kurt Vonnegut. Those are our, our general yes, New Yorkers do. of choice mm. on this podcast. And he always talked about the fact that why was it that poetry so often would turn things into myths and turn mm. uh, the stars into beasts or gods, um, when in fact the way that they really are or appear to be, from what our understanding, is even more magnificent than if they were just some great big bearded creature, you know, hurling out vengeance. Well, I, I like the way, you know, one of my disciplines is science communication. And, and I'm not saying these poems are science communication, but I love the way they distill things down to their essence. Um, and often it can be a much more sort of satisfying way of reading something rather than reading a whole a whole book or or a whole long passage and it can give you yeah just more of a, a feel for the topic that you might not get from something more you know more prose based 
Well, I suppose it, it's still in its. I suppose it depends on. I'm sure there are people who run science communication degree courses who will then go, well, that's not science communication. But that idea that if someone reads one of those poems mm. and goes, oh, I need to know more about that woman or that man, mm. that the, the part of science communication is not necessarily. To, I, well, maybe, but I'm not certain whether it's always to communicate the science or communicate the curiosity and the passion that means okay. you will then sure, approach sure, sure. the science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this looks really fascinating, gathering evidence. How's her name pronounced again? Sorry. It's I think it's Kaolin. Kaolin Hughes. Kaolin. Yeah. But anything that sets you on a course is useful, isn't it? Anything that kind of inspires you to take up an interest mm. in the subject is, is fantastic. So we've now, we've now got uh, atoms, dinosaurs and DNA. That's one of yours. Oh, that's just another one of mine. I didn't need to talk about that. But that's this is exciting. That's a <coughs> mentioned an exhibition that Veronica Maduna and I curated. That was at the National Library of New Zealand, oh, two thousand and six, I think. Yeah. I love how Kiwi a lot of the photos are. <laughs> like so many of them are just out in the bush. Yeah, for sure. Just looking really practical outside. Oh, this is. Oh, I'm really. These are really nice portraits because there's one here of. Paul Callahan, who's a physicist, playing the French horn. Just oh, that's see the, the book that we bought, that I bought the other day. That's Paul Callahan. Which book? Paul Callahan died about um, three years ago, four years yeah, ago. Yeah. So this was the book with him and Kim it, Hill. Or, no, it was just don't... a little book of. Uh, there's some series oh, oh, sure, of sure, kind sure. of famous New Zealand. Yeah. No, yeah. that's lovely. Bridget Williams' books text. Yeah, that's Luminous right. moments. Yes, I just yeah, picked it up when it's we were lovely. in Auckland. Yeah. So that's you know has sort of. First-hand accounts of writing about a range of things. It's a lovely book. Yeah. Yeah, he seems to have the really beautiful sentences mm, in it, and, mm. and the way of drawing again that way of drawing people in. Yeah. Um, now let's have a look. So we're going to we're never going to get through all of these. It's so we'll go. So uh, it's so beautifully laid out. Now H is for hawk. I still haven't read H is for hawk. Oh, you haven't. McDonald. And people, have you read it yet? No, and it's recommended to me so much, mm. so often. Uh, Everyone loves it. Yeah. I sometimes get resistant to reading books that everyone says you must read, um, but it was definitely worth it. And it's one I think I'd love to read again. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's I, you know, I, I do tend to pick sciencey books, and this is almost incidental science. Um, it's just wonderful. Yeah. What is it that's drawn so many people to it? Do you think, or what? What would, would it's, you? It's her. It's Helen. It's the way she writes about herself. And, and her experiences and her interactions with this hawk. It's just so... Um, oh, she draws the reader in so close, and it feels really honest, which I think is is what makes it kind of remarkable. Yeah. And isn't it so unexpected? Who would have thought all this stuff about hawks? It's something I would have had no idea about. Yeah. That's the great thing, isn't it? When a book suddenly, because then publishers try and work out some, <coughs> you know, algorithm that means that they'll constantly be able to come up with yeah, these sure. idiosyncratic. And you go, no, it's just yeah. someone recommends it to someone, and someone else recommends, it, and then suddenly people just go, it's just beautiful. Mm. That's the interesting thing, I think, with uh, you know, so many of the books that we talk about is it's just down something about turns of phrase and sentences that mean that almost any subject can become uh, beautiful mm. or fascinating. Sure. Because so who's the guy I've mentioned before who, uh, John Parker, who uh, his books are predominantly interview books, but he removes himself from them. So they just become monologues by different mm. people. And sometimes they're people on death row. And sometimes they're just people in this. There's one called Bird, Kansas, which is uh, he's changed the name of the town, but it's just about local people in a very, very small town. And then he wrote one about lighthouse keepers and their wives. <laughs> and, you know, when you go, I don't know if I want to read a book about Lighthouse Keeps Their Wives. Then afterwards you go, I've been waiting to read a book about Lighthouse Keeps Their Wives for yes, years. Yes. This is the best book about Lighthouse Keepers and their wives and all that. It, it's, uh, and then it turned out it was also written really at the end of that being a profession mm. in the UK because oh, okay. uh, most of them are, I think, I don't know if most of them or all of them are automated now, but uh, lighthouses. Oh, you looked at me as if I would know. <laughs> well, you're the kind of person who would know about lighthouses, I think. Do you know what? They're all automated now. Thanks, Josie. I thought you'd know sorry, that. Sorry, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that was really I've useful. I've been distracted because I've been looking at this book. I'm sorry. Now, the next one is interesting because uh, our last guest picked not that book, uh, mm. but picked another uh, article on the book, Complications, I think oh, okay. it was. Yes, I've read that as well. Yeah. I, I just love his work. He's incredible. He, um, 
It astonishes me how he can have a sort of full-time career as a doctor, as a surgeon, and write books and mm. do all the other things he does. Um, and also but, to have such an intensely specified talent as a surgeon yeah. and then to have such an intensely specified talent yeah. as a writer, which is different. It's really different. Um, but I just think his writing is beautiful and the perspective that he brings is beautiful as well. It's And, I, and again, there's, I guess there's an honesty thing as well you know if someone's writing in the first person you want it to be to feel honest mm. um and and the topic the things that he's writing about is fascinating um yeah and just a, really sensitive to the patients that he's writing about and raising some really important issues so it's yeah satisfying on so many levels it's just a really gripping read but it leaves you with a lot afterwards lots to think about I wonder where that starts, because I was kind of thinking, I know that Oliver Sacks became mm. someone who was so great, but I wonder, I can't remember who it was, he said there was one writer who really influenced him to, to yeah. and, and I think many of these books seem to come from him, uh, from from that idea of, right, yeah. I, I read Love's Own Executioner, do you know that? But no. Uh, that, that's very, very different, it's a psychotherapist, Erwin mm -hmm. um, Yalom. And that, that bit of explaining, because he, he's weird, Erwin Yalom, in, in that book, because... Every now and again, he'll kind of say, this patient came in and I did not like this patient <laughs> for various irrational reasons. <laughs> Whereas most of these books you read and there's immediately a compassion. Uh, and as sure. I realised, this person's probably, he's kind of sitting there going, yeah, this guy was fat. He was too fat and it made me... And you go, whoa, <laughs> this may well affect your practice. <laughs> but in, in fact, it seems his honesty, if anything, he's got them all queuing up. Fat and thin. Um, so that's that's better. Um, uh, a surgeon's notes on performance, which I think is, would that be after complications? Is that more recent? Uh, well, just because we talked yeah, about that. Yeah, was it complications then better than um, the being mortal? And I haven't mentioned Josie this time. That story he wrote uh, based on that person who scratched the their way through the brain. The itch. Oh, yeah, it's amazing, oh, isn't God, it? I, I said that to Josie. Start. Yeah. And she went. <laughs> Yeah, and it was yeah a proper... because you described it in such chilling detail. I just said that it was really, she woke up and it was no, green stuff, wasn't it? it? Oh, was disgusting. Yeah, it is we, really incredible. We, I, I teach a creative science writing course with Ashley Young, who's just written an amazing book, Can You Tolerate This?, which just won a huge prize. Yeah. What's um, it? Is that about squeamishness? No, no, that was just... Instead, we teach a course together, a writing course, and, and we set that as a reading for oh. class and then we discuss it in class and of course everyone's sort of freaking out and scratching and feeling uncomfortable yeah you can't read that piece without itching and but what's, can you tolerate this about it's a collection of essays personal essays yeah it's a gorgeous book actually i should have um, brought it along but it was in a different pile i have i've books in many different piles and different different buildings and you've got other system yeah i don't yeah <laughs> Also, it doesn't matter. You have brought it along. Well, I've brought it along in my yeah. head. So that, yeah. that's... Uh, right, let's go for the... We've got, got about five minutes left. Mm. Uh, which one? Let's do them in, in order of, of necessity. So uh, out of that pile, by the way, there's, there's, there's six books currently in front of us. What's the first one you're going to go, this is the one that you well, like, feel people must read? I, uh, for must read, I don't know. It, Sarah Wheeler's Terra Incognita was... Um, something that I found was gorgeous her, about her travels in Antarctica and she spent quite a long time there, several months um, and wrote, yeah it's just her account of, of being in Antarctica but if you're in Antarctica you're interacting with scientists so there's a, she talks a lot about the, the science that was going on um, but, but it's, yeah, it's a very, very much a personal account, actually I read that before I went to Antarctica and I haven't read it since so it might be um, yeah, something to revisit and be yeah. like, nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> this is, um, what do you think, in terms of people at us who've never been to Antarctica, yeah. what are the most surprising things? What is it that the majority of people probably don't know? Well, like, for me, it depends where you are, because I've been to the McMurdo area where Scott Base and McMurdo Station are, and a lot of people have this idea of Antarctica as sort of, melancholy and silence and wilderness um, and that part of Antarctica is not like that, it's the most populated part of Antarctica, it's noisy, there's helicopters taking off, there's planes landing, <laughs> there's monster trucks driving around, there's heaps of stuff, there's ships coming in to unload uh, cargo and oil and I found that all kind of exciting, this sort of the, this logistics of science and, and 
with a bit of military support. So it's like a port from about 1870. <laughs> well, some people describe McMurdo as like a sort of Canadian mining town, like an Arctic mining town. Um, but it's all in the pursuit of science. Um, I mean, there are other political reasons why there are bases there, but the stuff that's happening day to day is science. There's parties being helicoptered out to glaciers to do research projects. There's other guys going out in the Haglands to the sea ice to do some um, underwater projects. There's people diving under the ice to look. It's just so exciting. If you're a science nerd, it's just, well, yeah, it's just so exciting. much happening. Yeah, because it's people trying to further human endeavour. Yeah, like, yeah, everyone, yeah. Like you say, like everyone's got their own work and they're trying yeah. really hard. And then someone's flying down to the South Pole and it's, yeah, it's just so much going on and just sort of being in in the middle of that bustle is incredibly exciting. Is there anyone there who's nothing to do with it but who's like, I'm running a phone shop here. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I've got down there and I'm going to sell those, what are those called? Candy... Pies. You know, there's choco pies. Well, in McMurdo, there are three bars, there's a church, there's a hospital, there's a shop. This is what I'm talking about. There are a good hundred people there. Washing dishes. Yeah, who were just like, I I like the scientists, but I'm more interested in the beans. Well, there there is a book, I haven't actually read it. What is it called? Dead Cold Place? It's something like that, which was written by one of one of the guys who was washing dishes or something, um, and that was his experience of McMurdo. And it's on my list of books to read. Um, but yeah, he was quite scathing about the the scientists. The scientists are called the Beakers, and I'm like, there's the so the, town and gown. Well, there's the scientists, there's the military, and then there's the cahoots, the mechanics, and the people like that. And there's actually the the three bars there. That's kind of. One where the scientists go, one where the military go, and one where the, the mechanics and so on go. That is just waiting to become a horror film of sorts. Well, there was, really have to fight there, was there was a plan. Um, James Gandolfini was was, oh. was planning a, a TV series based on the book, but oh. then he died. That's it would have been shame. cool. Big Dead what? Place, Inside the Strange and Menacing World of Antarctica. Yeah. I'm being shown this by Trent. I'm not. I'm not like I've picked it up and I've guessed. Picked it up actually well. not for the part of my brain that normally keeps all its lighthouse expertise in. That's, uh, <laughs> that's an because uh, um, there have been a few. I don't know. Do they discover the thing from outer space in the Arctic or the Antarctic? It's the Antarctic. Yeah. And that 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 film gets watched at Antarctic bases <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Really <coughs> must put you off if you know using a defibrillator. Of what happens, I can't remember. Uh, the guy, one, two, three, one, two, three, and then yeah. he puts his hands in, the whole chest it cavity opens up yeah. and uh, bites off the man's arms. And Atagamondi wrote idea, about uh, the arms <coughs> being bitten off in... No, he didn't. The, uh, it's interesting looking at Terra Incognita as well, where, again, when you talk about the two cultures, and, and like so many science books, you know, some of the chapters begin with Shackleton and Scott, but mm. some of them start with Auden and Yates and, yeah. and Tennyson. yeah. Um, what was the, what's the, the film with, uh, or the TV series with Michael Gambon that's uh, set in a, it's like a murder thriller? But again, I don't know. Singing Detective? Singing not the Singing Detective. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, anyway, let's, it doesn't matter about that. that. Well, let's have a look at the final books. Look, I'll, I'll just do these two by New Zealand authors. And this one's Ocean Notorious by Matt Barnes. Um, and it's just a, a gorgeous book. He, he's a sailor. He was actually um, the communications manager with, when I went to Antarctica for the first time, so he was my on-ice escort. So he's been south a lot by um, ship and by plane and also sailed a lot north. And so he wrote this book um, basically with each chapter starts at a different latitude south between New Zealand and Antarctica and then writes um, a piece about that place. Wow. And it, it's lovely, beautiful, beautiful writing. And again, the sort of stories that you wouldn't, that you just haven't come across anywhere else. Well, this is the thing, like, all of this place, it's, it's being explored now. It's, mm. it's so kind of unknown and, and also so difficult as well. So it's not something that people can be like... I went to the beaches of southern Spain. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, I don't want to read another book about, you know, Provence and, and Italy. I mean, but 
Maybe I do, but I'd rather I read. Don't. No, I've not even yeah. read one. I don't think. No. <laughs> the, um, I read some of a year of the months when I was about twenty, and I was a bit like, I don't get this. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are the? Uh, actually, we haven't got time for that. I'm not going to ask you any more questions apart from which books. Mm. What's, your, what's your, the other book you've got? Oh, this about, is which is How to Watch a Bird by Steve Bronius, which is a gorgeous book. Um, he, he's a, a New Zealand writer, a journalist. I think he's won awards in just about every category of journalism that you can. Um, and this is just a gorgeous book. Um, you know, it's about bird watching on one level, but it's also very personal and, um, you know, follows his, his own life um, at the same time. And there's just some gorgeous close observations. And he's not a scientist. He's sort of coming at it from a just a... You know, an interested layperson perspective, um, and it, yeah, it's lovely. And 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 he's got a a dry, quiet humour. It's not always a quiet humour, but he's he's got a very distinctive style that I really like. Are you working on anything else? Uh, well, I mean, obviously you've got some time, but are you gonna? Have you got a big project in your head for the next? Well, project? I think the the world might need a, a book about pumice. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm working on a collection of essays at the moment. That's what I'm doing this year, and um, many of them so far are Antarctica. So, so I've had these amazing trips, and I've written journalistic pieces about them, or I've, you know, I've written the things that I had to do, did the blogs I had to do, and the magazine articles I was contracted to write. But I still have so much more to write about them, um, and um, I'm really enjoying the freedom of writing, and you know, in a creative writing program without a publisher. Um, without an editor, just to see where these stories go. It's development and training. It's it's not having to go, there's this one race that I have to run. Yeah, yeah, and just exploring. So so they are essays, there's science in them, there's travel, personal stuff, a mix. I have to, yeah, just sort of finding that balance between, I don't want to end up doing great big personal rants, but, um, (laughs) but, but, yeah, just to let that be a part of it the way that you don't in a journalistic or academic piece. That's brilliant. Yeah. So I like how generous all your um, just choices that. are like with people that you've worked with and people that, um, oh, well, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to stop being oh, grim. This is uh, <laughs> the other books we can get, Multiple Exposures, Chronicles of the Radiation Age. And that's um, wonderful. That's about American sort of nuclear story. That inspired my Mad on, mad on Radium. Wow. Confessing okay. a Murder. What more can you ask for a first novel? So this, so this is... Uh, oh, wow, so this is about theory of uh, evolution. This is... Uh, it's, a, it's a novel... It's a fictional account sort of on an island with all these insane, mad creatures, and it, it's just wonderful. It's, it's one of those completely unexpectedly wonderful books. Oh, that looks great. Yeah. Um, and uh, Anne Patchett, Commonwealth. Do, uh, just to prove that I do just read fiction for fun as well. And that's a, I love Anne Patchett, who works. I love all of her stuff. Do you um, find that hard, though, sometimes, where you go, oh, everything has to have some purpose? So even though you're having delight in yeah. reading non-fiction books, mm. do you have that problem where you go, this is a novel? It, am I getting enough out of this? Yeah, I do sometimes, and I go, what a... What I did all summer, because I knew I was doing this course this year, so all summer I only read fiction, and it was like almost to cleanse my palate to, you know, just just read fiction, and now I'm just reading non-fiction. So, yeah, it's, sometimes it's hard going back and forth, but sometimes, you know, f- just reading good fiction is, um, it, yeah, it can be very satisfying and relaxing, but reading bad fiction I find more disappointing than bad non-fiction. Me too, because yeah. with bad non-fiction, at least you have learnt a few yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. Even if you're like, oh, this is so Yeah, it fe- at least it feels worthy. Yes. Well, bad yeah. fiction, I find it's like, it's like you want to eat a piece of chocolate and you go and eat some sort of fucking Atkins chocolate substitute <laughs> and at the end of it, you feel far worse than if you'd eaten some chocolate. But, uh, I read a couple of books this year because I wanted to find books that were kind of... <laughs> crime fiction or mm-hmm. um, good suspense so I read a couple of like page turnery airport books and both of them I was just so upset there was not a single line that I wanted to underline mournfully thinking about the human condition <laughs> which is my favourite thing there was not like there was nothing in it that I thought oh that's a really wonderful summary of something it was all just like a story and now the story is over but the story was fine oh sorry 
I connect with that incredibly. No, I know. It feels like a yeah, a, a time suck and a waste of waste of your life. And then, do you find if you start something, you commit to it and you must finish it? Or yes, I do. Good? No, yeah. I, yeah, I do that. And it's such a shame because you know as you're doing it, you're like, well, this yeah. is pointless. But. Yeah. I do sort of, I, I can sort of skim read or pretend that I'm speed reading, but I do need to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So was he, were you reading one of those books that has that kind of, he was a tall man, with the shoulders of an athlete and the hands of a blacksmith? I wish it was that sort of thing. No, just things that were, you know, I, I really want to be able to go into just like an airport bookshop and find something that was about grim murders and have a great time on the plane, but there's never... It's a, well, we're gonna, I'm going to find snobby. you a grim murder book. What I would like is a long list of recommendations of uh, fiction about detectives and crimes and uh, murder mysteries. The, but all the, oh, sorry. I was going to say there's, a good, um, New Zealand, there's some good New Zealand fiction in that genre as well. Paul Cleave, I think. Oh, uh, I've heard of Paul Cleave. Yeah. He was married to King Henry VIII. <laughs> 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 I've heard of Paul Cleave. I'm going to write that down. Thank you. Because I think, yeah, because crime writing, there's some great stuff. We were talking a while ago about Ian Rankin, who we've still not had uh, on, on this, and uh, the, the, I really, I'm fascinated by the fact that crime writers all seem to really get on with each other, yeah. and whenever they do, do they? crime writing yeah. conventions, like, hey, we're all going to have a drink together, there's not that kind of, with some authors, you can see them all going, ah, that person won the prize that I wanted. <laughs> Paul Cleave, there we are, trust no one. Is uh, the one that Trent's holding up now? Oh, Cleave um, is a may, great name. Maybe that's because crime writers make money out of writing books, and and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they might just be very comfortable. You're right. So yeah, they they don't need to compete or feel jealous of each other. Oh, that's a gross generalisation, but yeah. No, but they're writing horrible things. So when they see each other, they're like, "Oh, thank God, we don't have to talk about a pool of blood. We can just talk about." Well, maybe they just feel comfortable that about what they're all writing about, whereas I, th I think I sat next to Paul once at a, some literary event, event and he did say that people treated him weirdly because they, you know, because so like, of his... You must be, yeah. there must be something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you're all writing about the same thing, you can just relax. Yeah, no one's going to judge. Mm. Yeah, if your worst bloody crimes have already been spread across the stage or in a book, that's all right then, isn't it? That's true, yeah. Mm. I don't know if your worst bloody crimes have, though. Sometimes you've got to look, especially when you've got a cold. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank uh, that was a, a brilliant uh, collection of, uh, of, of books. And uh, we'll be back another time when Josie hasn't got a cold. Hopefully, yeah. If I, if well, I, I hope survive, if not. It's been a wonderful time. And it's, I'm far too young to go. Where have you hidden your book of poetry so we can make sure that's published? I am under a folder, in a folder on my desktop. Excellent. So um, today's uh, episode is in memory of Josie Lyle. <laughs> Just to tie up a loose end, there's 37 staffed lighthouses in Canada, 62 in Italy and one in the Netherlands. Oh, right, so yeah, so, so, so the UK, yep, yeah, there we go, great. Um, do you want to say that, Josie, or you right? <coughs> I'm sorry, it went in one ear and out there. Well, that's good, at least your ears are clear, then. Um, now, on Patreon, if you are one of our Patreon subscribers, you'll be able to access extended episodes. You'll be able to put yourself in the running for a box of books, a prize, which is a box of books, is a tongue twister. You can put yourself in the running for that. And the odds are actually very good. Yeah. Because we give one away all the time. At least, one, at least every episode we give one away. Not everyone gets in contact. No. Uh, so it's going to roll over. And if you look on Twitter, normally we retweet who's received. The, the guy who got the last box of books got loads of stuff. For some reason, I was getting rid of some of my collectible marks books. Uh, nice. Carl, not Howard. And uh, <laughs> as well as Freud, Great Gatsby. Quite often there's a Kurt Vonnegut, because when I rifle through my bookshelves, I go, why have I bought Sirens of Titan 17 times? Oh, because one that had a picture on the dog on the front, and I think that's actually the nicest one. Yes, yeah, it's a lovely that. edition, so I'll keep the good edition. I'll get rid of... Uh, yes, that's like me with uh, Nye Bevan's In Place of Fear. How many times have you bought Can't that? Can't help myself. Um, there's also bonus episodes, but at the same time, please don't feel obliged to support us on Patreon. You know, there's lots of free content. Also, if you do support us on Patreon, don't worry that it's going to rack up to lots of money because there's going to be free content for you as well. And yeah, it works out very reasonably priced. And it's going to be a maximum of, of three episodes that you would pay for 
per month. It will, generally, now we're going to be fortnightly, but we're going to have still uh, shows popping up in between as well, which will all be free whether you're a Patreon supporter or not. It's much cheaper than BT Sport. And remember, tickets are on sale now for our live episodes we're recording next year as part of the Festival of Science at the Royal Albert Hall. So that will be Robin and Josie plus uh, one guest for an hour, two two shows recorded per night for one ticket price. So go to the Cosmic Shambles website or the Royal Albert Hall website and you will be able to find out about that and get tickets for that. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.